You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Judges chapter 7 with me. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue our series through the book of Judges. Um, for those of you who I haven't met, my name is Clint, and, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. Around this time last year, I came and spoke for the first time. I actually came and visited Savannah for the first time, maybe ever. I can't remember. Anyways, I got absolutely hammered with allergies when I came here. So this is the season that we're leaning into together. So if it gets rough up here today, that's what we're dealing with. Um, so we're in this together. I need your help. Um, we're, we're in a series this morning uh, through the book of Judges that we're calling Everyone Needs a King. And we're calling it that because of a specific phrase that happens several times at the end of the book of Judges. And there's one occurrence of it. It's in chapter 21. It should be on the screen. It says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So as you read your Bible, one of the things that you should pay attention to is anytime you see a verse or a, a, something repeated, right? And so at the end of Judges 4, we see this four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And the result here is that everyone just did what they wanted. Everyone just did whatever felt right to them in the moment. And so what's happening here is the author of Judges is trying to draw our attention to the irony in that statement. That yes, this is the period of time in Israel's history where there was no earthly king who ruled over them. But the irony here is that God's people are never without someone to rule over them. Right? They always have a king. You and I, we always have a king. Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua ends right before Judges starts in kind of the period of Israel's history. And as the book ends in Joshua 24, he says this. This will be familiar to some of you. He says this. should be on the screen. Choose this day who you are going to serve. You can serve the gods your father served if you want to. He's basically kind of building this up. He's saying you can, you can serve the gods your father served if you want to. And this is the part you'll recognize because you've seen it at the Hobby Lobby or it's in one of your houses, I know. But as for me, right, and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua kind of gives them this ultimatum. You can do that if you want, but for me, my family, we are serving the Lord. And Israel responds in this amazing way, right? It's this high point for the people of God. In verse 24, they, he says this, the Lord our God, we will serve. His voice, we will obey. So again, this is high point for the people of God, but what happens? Right, life gets hard, Joshua dies, and the cycle that we've been talking about of sin begins. The people of Israel forget the Lord their God, and they begin to do what is right in their own eyes. So we call this series, Everyone Needs a King, because we believe that you and I have a tendency to get stuck in the exact same cycle. That it's easy for us to make commitments like we see in Joshua 24, say, hey, God, I'm never going to do that again. God, I'm in. I will obey your voice. I'm committing my way to the Lord. We put the picture from Hobby Lobby over our house because we want to live that way. But then life gets hard, or as we'll talk about today, maybe life gets a little bit too easy. And we forget the Lord. We downshift right back into doing whatever feels right in the moment. And the book of Judges is God's declaration to his people, don't forget what he's drawing us into. It's what we want you to see in this week after week after week as we see the cycle. God's saying, don't forget, you have not been left without someone to rule over you. I am the Lord your God. And despite your sin and your rebellion against me, when you cry out to me, I will hear you and I will send you a savior. Only for you and I on this side of the cross, we get to read this book with different eyes, right? 
Because we know that the Savior that God sent us to save us from our sin and our rebellion, he didn't just come on behalf of the king, but the king came himself. The Son of God, Jesus, he came on our behalf. The one who was and is and is to come. He stepped down off the throne, took on flesh. Philippians 2 says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord, that he is king to the glory of God the Father. Right? And so I wanted to start our our time here before we jump into Judges 7 because this is the reason why we gather. To remember that we aren't those who don't have a king, that we aren't like the people who don't have someone to rule over them. And so we shouldn't live that way. We should line our life up with the way God says we should live. So that being said, let's turn our attention to Judges 7. This will be a familiar story to many of you. If you've been here with us, you might remember we're talking about a guy named Gideon. Okay, so this is week three on Gideon. We're going to finish him up next week. But the short version to kind of catch us up to chapter 7, verse 1, is that because of Israel's disobedience, God gives them over to a people named Midian, right? The Midianites. And this is where chapter 6 starts, actually. That should sound like what we've seen so far in the book of Judges, only the Midianites were different, okay? They didn't oppress Israel with military power like Israel's other enemies. What they did was came with a different strategy. So the Midianites lived south and east of Israel, and they lived in the desert. And so if you ever try to grow anything in the desert, it doesn't work well. So what they would do is they would kind of migrate their way up into Israel around harvest time, and they would basically strip the land of everything it had to offer. They would eat whatever they wanted, load up the rest, and then head back home. And they would do this year after year after year. And so if you're like me, you're wondering right now, why wouldn't they do something about it? Because I can promise you, if any one of you tried to come to my home repeatedly and take what, what I've earned and try to prevent my family from eating, I would try to stop you, at least the best I could. I may not be successful, but I would try. Um, but the reason why um, they didn't do anything about it was because they couldn't, basically. Chapter 7, verse 12 says this. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So this imagery of locusts here doesn't mean much to us except for ew, bugs, right? That's basically as far as we can get with that. But this was familiar language for them. And we see this other places in the scripture, particularly in, this was one of the plagues that God uses to send to Egypt and Pharaoh to try to convince him, hey, let my people go. So locusts would be blown in by the wind and they would eat the crops, they would devastate the land, they would even darken the skies, right? You just had this feel of gloom as they would come in. And this is how the Bible refers to the Midianites. Hey, they're starving Israel out and we can't do anything about it because we're so outnumbered. And to make matters worse, chapter 6 says this happens for seven years in a row. God's people were desperate, right? They were weak, they were hungry, they were tired. Nothing they could do to fix the situation they're in because they've exhausted all their other options. And only after they've ran through all those other options, then do they turn to the Lord and they cry out to him. And God raises up for them a man named Gideon to save Israel. Only Gideon isn't your typical general. He's not even a soldier. But God comes to him and says, and I'm going to save Israel from the Midianites through you. And as you would expect, there's a little bit of back and forth here. Gideon's like, hey, I think you got the wrong guy. 
right? It, it, it can't be me. He kind of goes back and forth with him. He sort of kind of gives his resume of saying, hey, here's all the reasons why I'm too weak to do what you are asking me to do. In chapter 6, verse 15, this kind of comes to a culmination in the conversation. It says this, please, Lord. This is Gideon talking to God. Please, Lord. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Right? So he's saying, I'm, I'm from the wrong tribe. There's got to be somebody more qualified in Israel. He's saying, I'm not even the most qualified person in my own family. Going back and forth with God, I love how God responds, verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and I will strike the Midianites. Right? He doesn't correct Gideon there. He doesn't start saying, Gideon, that's not true about you. Look how gifted you are. Look how strong you are. You can do this. He doesn't do that. Gideon says, I'm too weak to do this. And God goes, yep. But I will be with you. Right? We got to pay attention to this. And he fast forward a little bit. Gideon sends out. He finally gets it. He goes, okay, God, I'll do this, but you have to go with me. He sends out these messengers and he gathers an army I'm struggling with this thing today. He gathers an army of, of Israelites to, to basically go into battle with them, and that brings us up to chapter 7, verse 1. If you have your Bible, look there. Then Jeroboam, that is a nickname for Gideon because he whooped up on Baal. That's what that means literally in the original language, if you were wondering. Um, and all the people who were with them, they rose early and they encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Right, so here we have Gideon and his exhausted and his malnourished army gathered up on a mountain next to the spring of water, and north of them, down in the valley, was the, the numerous Midianites, right? The army of Midian, they were down in the valley, and they could see them, and there's a bit more irony here, <clears throat> excuse me, the word Herod here, so he says the spring of Herod, the word Herod comes from a verb that means to tremble. And so the author of Judges is communicating this material in such a way where he's saying, hey, the pre-battle position for the Israelites was the spring of trembling, right? These are fearful people. And honestly, can you blame them, right? They're weak. They're hungry, outnumbered almost five to one by the Midianites, not to mention they're about to be led into battle by a man who has zero experience, right? They should be afraid. And all this makes what is about to happen in chapter seven even more surprising. Look at verse two. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So I've mentioned this before up here, but my wife and I, we have two little boys, okay? Um, our youngest is 11 months today, actually, and our oldest is three years old and some change. And his name is Zeke. Um, I've used him as a sermon illustration a number of times recently. Um, and the reason why is because he's a walking sermon illustration, okay? He's also, he's also in that sweet spot of age where I don't have to ask his permission to tell a story about him. And so here we go. Um, <clears throat> he does this thing whenever something happens to him that he doesn't have a category for, where he goes, what? Okay? And so if you're wondering what that is there, it's like the word what, but there's an F at the beginning, and then there's a heavy emphasis on the H. Okay, what? This is how this. I'll use an example so you can catch up with me here. Um, this past weekend, my wife took him to the grocery store to get groceries. He comes home with a new toy. Okay, and so I wanted to be frustrated because I'm like, hey, we don't need any more toys, especially not ones from Kroger. But <laughs> to my surprise, Kroger has stepped up their toy game. Okay, so I saw what he came home with, and I was no longer frustrated. He had a Captain America shield. Okay, there was a Frisbee, basically, that had a magnet on it and then a wrist strap that he could put it on. And he's so proud of it. And he comes in and he goes, Dad, look, it's so special to me. That's what he said when he ran in the door. 
So it's like I can't be frustrated anymore, okay? <laughs> Plus it was seven bucks, okay? So it's not a big deal, not a huge life decision on that purchase, but he starts explaining to me how it works. He goes, look, you can, it's a shield, and when someone tries to attack you, you can block it, and then you take it off and you throw it at their face, okay? <laughs> so he's, he's down the road on this thing already. Um, so we are in his brother's room playing with the shield, and my 11-month-old's in the crib behind bars so he doesn't get smoked in the face with his Frisbee. Um, and so Zeke throws his Frisbee at the chair, the enemy. It sits in the chair. He turns around to do something, and while he did that, I grabbed him and hit it behind my back, okay? So immediately he turns around, what? Because <laughs> like, it's there. He turns. He comes back. It's gone, okay? Here's why I'm telling you this story. That's how we should respond to verse 2. Right? What God just said to Gideon was, the people of Israel are too many for me to give the Israelites into your hand. Our response should be, what? Like, how could that be? We should expect the opposite. Imagine what Gideon would be thinking here. How could there be too many Israelites? We're already outnumbered four or five to one. Not only that, we've lived the last seven years of our life having all of our food taken from us. We're weak, we're broken. How could there be too many of us? Also, shouldn't we expect to want to be in the, the strongest possible position before we go into battle? You would think so, but that's not what happens. Look at verse 3. Now, therefore, God says, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And Gideon's like, well, dang, right? We don't have a lot of details about how the conversation went down, but what's clear in the text is that two-thirds of his army is just gone. And so at this point, my guess is Gideon's not feeling too confident, right? Whatever, whatever energy he had about, we can do this, we can beat the Midianites, we can, we can handle this, right? It's gone. But, but maybe somehow he can muster up the strength, right? He's going to psych himself up, and he just kind of says something like, well, we didn't need them anyways, right? We, we, they're going to just slow us down. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, that one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Again, imagine how Gideon would have responded to this. Excuse me, what? The people are too many. How could that be? Right? There, were, there weren't too many before you sent the wimpy guys home. There's definitely not too many now. But God keeps going, verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So if you're familiar with this story, maybe you've heard this text preached before, what you probably heard was something along the lines of, man, God wants to use a certain type of person. That's what we hear in this text, and I think that's absolutely right. God does want to use a certain type of person, but where I think we get this wrong is who that type of person is. So they take these two tests and they delineate from that who God wants to use, and the first one seems easy, right? God wants to use people who aren't afraid. That's what they take from this. He wants to use people who are willing to risk it all for him to really run into battle. But that can't be right. Because what we'll see here in a second in verse 10 is that Gideon's afraid too. And not only that, the Bible's full of God using people who are afraid. 
So then you take the second test, which is a little more difficult. And you say something like, well, God, you know, he, he, he sends the men home who put their face down in the water to laugh. And he used his 300 men who drink water with, with their hand who scoop it up to their face because those are the guys who are vigilant. Those are the guys who keep their eyes on the enemy and they can keep their sword in their hand. That's the kind of stuff people say with this. And so God chose that group of 300. Um, the problem with that is the text itself doesn't even say which is the right way. But if you read through this later, the, the text doesn't even say which one is right, just that God chose the smaller group. Again, a moment where we should go, what? Why would he pick 300 men? Chapter 8 says they at least had 135,000 soldiers, not to mention how many women and children would have been in the camp of Midian. So don't get me wrong, I think we should be vigilant, right? We should pay attention to our enemies. You can preach that sermon from the Bible, just not from Judges 7. So I think as we're working through those verses and I was describing how Gideon might have responded to God, did you notice the Bible doesn't even hint at what Gideon might have been thinking? In verse 3, God says to Gideon, send home everyone who's afraid. The army's cut to 10,000. Then in verse 4, God says, you're still too many and we end up with 300 people. And in all that, it never mentions how Gideon or Israel feel about it, not because God doesn't care how they feel, not because how they feel doesn't matter, just because it's not the point of the story. The point of the story is about God. So if you were at our Learning to Read the Bible seminar a few weeks ago, we talked about this, and how you and I tend to approach the Bible asking it the wrong question. We go to the Bible asking it to, to tell us something about ourselves. God, answer, who am I? God, help me with this problem that I have in my life so we feel anxious or, or afraid. And we go to the scriptures looking for Verses to help us with our anxiety, to help us with our fear, or as we talked about last week, we need to make a big decision in our life. God, what job should I take? God, who should I marry? Which college do you want me to go to? Those are good things to ask of God to go to the scriptures, but we go to the Bible going, hey, help me with what I have. Answer the question of who am I? And don't get me wrong, it's never bad to go to the Bible, and it's not bad to go to the Bible with questions about your life. It's just that we have to go knowing that the Bible wasn't primarily written to answer those questions. The Bible was primarily written to answer the question, who is God? And so if we put that over Judges 7 and we ask the question, what does this passage teach us about God's character and about God's nature, I think what we'll see is that the point of the text isn't about us trying real hard not to be afraid or, or making sure we pay attention to our life and do things this way, drink water like this, don't drink water like that, because if you don't, God won't use you. I think we'll see that's not the point. Judges 7 isn't primarily about what God or Israel, about what Gideon or Israel is doing. It's about what God is doing through them. What we learn from the text about God is this. God intentionally weakens Gideon and his army. That's what we see about God. And the question we have to answer this morning is why? Why does God do that? Because that makes no sense. Right? And, the, and the good news is we don't have to try to figure it out on our own. You don't even have to take my word for it. Verse 2 tells us explicitly. Verse 2, look again, chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And there's our answer. Right? God says, I will put you in a position of weakness because if I don't, you will want to take the credit for it got to figure out what that means for us today. Two things I want you to see here. 
Firstly, it's that no matter how weak or strong God's people might be, He is the one who deserves the glory. He is the one who deserves the, the victory, the glory for the victory. He's the one who deserves the credit. Look at verse 7. We just read it. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. I will give the Midianites into your hand and let all others go to his home. Right? He's saying, I'm going to do this. He's saying what he said all along. I will give them into your hand. And the point is for us, no matter how weak or how strong God's people are, in a given moment, God is the one who deserves the glory. And then the second thing here that we need to pay attention to is that God doesn't just care about the outcome of our lives, but he is deeply caring about our hearts. He doesn't just care about how life works out for us in the end, but he deeply cares about how or, or our hearts in the moment. And here's what I mean by that. God could have done whatever he wanted in this situation. There wasn't a single moment where God wasn't in complete control. He would have won that battle without a single one of these folks, but God wants to draw them into a life of trusting him. Right, he's willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. So if you're paying attention with me right now, that should be another one of those what moments. Wait a minute, God is willing to intentionally weaken us, make life more difficult for us, or allow life to become more difficult for us so that we will learn to trust him. Yes, that's what the Bible's saying. This is what verse two means. The Bible just said the way God works in your life includes him being willing to weaken you in order to prevent you from thinking that you're awesome. Prevent you from thinking that you don't need him. That's what verse two means. Lest Israel boast over me saying my own hand has saved me. This is incredible insight into the disposition of the human heart. That in chapter seven, you have this busted and broken people so desperate that they only turn to God after they've exhausted all their other options. And even at just the, they haven't even won yet. Even at the whiff of a victory, God knows that they're gonna wanna take the credit for it. God knows they're gonna wanna lean into this space where they feel like they don't need him anymore. So he weakens them. And that sounds cruel on the surface because why would God do that, right? Why would God make life or even allow life to be more difficult than it has to be? And the answer is because God doesn't just care about the outcome of our lives, but he cares about our hearts. What seems cruel on the surface is actually the most loving thing God could possibly do because by weakening Gideon's army, he is preventing them from drifting into a life of believing that they don't need him. That is God's kindness to us. And I feel like I've said this a lot in past months, but isn't this what we have the tendency to do, that when life goes well, we think we did that. And when life goes bad, it's God's fault. Judges 7 verse 2 peels back the curtain on the human heart and shows us the insidious nature inside of us towards pride and towards autonomy, toward a life of believing no one is king over me. Not God, no one is king over me. No one gets to tell me what to do but me. And we have to understand that God could leave us there. He could leave us there. He could let us run down that road, that path where we've convinced ourselves that we don't need him and we don't need anyone else, but praise be to God that he doesn't. He doesn't leave us there. And the truth is God is willing to put his people in a position of weakness to teach us that we aren't as strong as we think we are. Let's keep going, verse nine. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. 
So after God takes Gideon's army from 32,000 down to 300, he says, okay, you got 300 guys. Now you can go defeat Midian. And then what we're about to see here is the proof that God isn't willing to just work through people who aren't afraid. Look at verse 10. But, God says, if you're afraid go to go down and fight Midian, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were at the camp. So God says, go defeat Midian. But if you're afraid, why don't you just sneak down there, get close enough, and listen to what they're saying about you? So real quick, if God only wanted to use people who weren't afraid, verses 10 through 14 wouldn't be in the Bible. In fact, this passage reveals something else to us about the character and the nature of God, that he is far more patient with us than we are with him. And so after all that he had been through with Gideon, right, all the back and forth, all the doubting, all the God, I'm too weak, God, you got the wrong guy, I can't do this. All the signs that God used to reveal to Gideon that he would be with him. Here he still is, paralyzed in his fear, unwilling to do what God has asked him to do. But God doesn't give up on him. If you're afraid, he says, go and defeat Midian. It should be enough. But it's not. And God in his patience says, but if, you're, if you are afraid, go down into the camp. God doesn't give up on him. And in the same way, I mean, how patient is our God with us? All the times we've made those commitments to God, Lord, I'm never going to do that again. We try real hard, don't we? Depending on how disciplined you are, maybe it lasts a few weeks, maybe it lasts a few months, but in your own strength, you will always end up right back to where you started or even worse. And what I want you to see here is that God isn't asking you this morning to pretend you're not weak. He's not asking you to pretend like you're not afraid or that you've got your life together. God says to Gideon, I know you're afraid, or, or if you're afraid, knowing that he is. And I love how Gideon responds because this is the one place in this text that we don't see any pushback from him. Right, everything else, go do this, go do this, but what, uh, 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 right? But he says, but if you're afraid, he goes, yeah, that's me. But he signs himself up for that. God says, go down and defeat Midian, but if you are afraid, sneak down and listen to what they're saying. And what does he do? He sneaks down and listens to what they're saying. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, his friend, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. So at the exact moment that Gideon and his friends show up at the outpost of the Midian camp, they get there in time to hear a conversation, and the guy's telling his friend, Man, you're never going to believe the dream I had. Right? He's just having a conversation with his buddy. They're guarding the camp. You're never going to believe the, the, the dream that I had. He's like, it's so weird. There was this huge biscuit just rolling into the camp, right? And it runs into the tent, but it doesn't hit the tent and bounce off. It flips it over, and then it knocks it down flat. And he's not expecting a response there, right? We've had this conversation before. As you're telling somebody about this dream you just had, you're remembering more crazy details that you're like, this makes no sense, but it seemed normal when I was there, you know? This is what's happening for him. He's not expecting much of a response, but somehow his friend has a really specific interpretation for him. Look at verse 14. His friend answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. What are the chances of that? Right? 
Like, how does he get that from this dream? There's a little bit of information you need to know that to get us there. He, so the Midianites were this Bedouin people, right? They would travel in, they lived in tents. So it makes sense as they came in and camped around Israel that they would be the tent. And it makes sense that Israel would be the biscuit because they, they're a, a cake of barley. That's a, the diet of an impoverished people. But no one knew who Gideon was. How did he know Gideon? No one knew who Gideon was. Even in his own words, Gideon says, God, I'm a nobody. And this dream confirms that, doesn't it? The Bible just called him a cake of barley. Not exactly a fear-invoking picture, right? That would be like, hey, where, where'd you go to school again? Oh, yeah, 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 that's right, cool. What, what, I've heard of that place. What's your mascot? Oh, we're the Rolling Biscuits. <laughs> like, how does the coach give the pregame speech with that, right? They're going to be real tired once they get a mouthful of us, I promise you. Here's the point. Why do I do that? God says to Gideon, go down into the camp and listen to what they say, and your hands will be strengthened. Okay? And we assume what the Bible means by that is that Gideon's going to be strong. That's what we assume. But at the exact time that he sneaks up on the Midianite, Midianite camp, he hears his name, and at that moment, something changes inside of him. Nothing changes about his ability to fight. Nothing changes about his ability to lead an army or about his weaknesses. What changes is that Gideon finally gets it. He finally gets what God is trying to teach him all along. And what God is saying to Gideon in Judges 7 is the same thing that he's trying to say to you and me this morning. I am not asking you to be strong enough to do this. Right? All of our back and forth, all of our pushbacks. God, I'm too weak. God, I'm, I can't do it. I'm the weakest in my family. God's saying, I'm not asking you to be strong enough to do this. I'm asking you to believe that I am. This is the point that, that God is making. So yes, Judges 7 is about what type of person that God wants to use, but it isn't about him not wanting to use people who aren't weak. This chapter is about God's willingness to intentionally weaken his people to teach them not to rely on their own strengths. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me saying my own hand has saved me. The point is, when life's too easy, we won't trust God. We won't need to. We trust ourselves. We start believing the lie that the victories that we accomplish on this side of things, that the glory doesn't belong to him, it's because of how awesome we are. Start believing that we don't need God and this, and this other thing happens to us, which is even worse, right? That we start to believe that since we've accomplished all these victories in our life and it came so easy to us when we see people around us struggling, we become so self-righteous and judgmental towards them that the church can't exist the way it's supposed to. In 2 Corinthians verse 12, or chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking about a similar situation, and he says, he's describing some spiritual uh, accomplishments that he had in his life, about how God had revealed some crazy truths to him, and how he had these crazy visions from the Lord, and this will be on the screen, he says this. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, again, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
So when you think about this in Judges 7, what becomes clear is that we operate under a different definition of what true power is. We believe, like the Apostle Paul, that if we, we want to be powerful, then we need to be strong. We don't, we don't read 2 Corinthians 12 rightly. It's not when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's when I'm strong, then I am strong. Again, the Apostle Paul is right there with us. He prays three times, Lord, take this away. What he's saying there is, I could do so much more for your kingdom. God, think about all the people who could come to know you if I didn't have to deal with this. He's praying, God, take this away from me. God's answer to him is basically this, my kingdom will be fine. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Right? This is not a popular idea. In fact, this is the same sort of thing that got Jesus killed. Because we think about power in a different way. We don't think power is found in weakness. We think power is found in being strong. So we try to live this hybrid version of Christianity where we say that Jesus is our king, but we live our lives almost completely opposite of how he says we should. We have to remember that the invitation from Jesus to those who would follow him is this, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He's inviting us into a life of weakness. Again, this is not a popular idea, but man, it is good news for us this morning because it means we get to quit pretending. If God's power is made perfect in your weakness, then that means that we get to quit pretending, quit trying to convince the world that we're strong, amen? If that's where God's power is made perfect in us, then we get to quit trying to pretend to the world that we're strong, and the fact that you and I are in desperate need of God every moment of every day is not evidence against us. It is God's grace towards us. That real Christianity isn't for people who think they're awesome, it's for people who know they can't do this on their own and are desperate for God. This is why God is willing to weaken us intentionally to teach us to trust Him. People who are willing to empty their hands enough to let go of, hey, look at what I can do to receive the power of God in their lives made perfect. And our God loves us so much, He is, he is willing to intentionally weaken us. Because if life were easy, we would never go to him. If it were always easy, my guess is we wouldn't open our hands to him at all. So let me just say this, I, this is for our good, but it is still difficult to wrap our minds around, is it not? Especially for those of us who are in seasons where we feel like God may be doing that to us. Where the only prayers that you can muster are, God, what are you doing? God, why have you allowed this to happen in my life? Firstly, those are good prayers. We talked about last week, you go to God. You don't run from him. But if that's you, let me encourage you this way. What we just saw in Judges 7 is that our God is patient and he is at work in the mess of your life. God sends Gideon down into the enemy camp to encourage him in ways that Gideon didn't have a category for Right? If you're in this season where it feels like God is nowhere to be found, where it feels like it's impossible that God could be working in the circumstances of your life, you hear this, that God sends Gideon right down into the camp knowing that he had given that guy a dream. This was a dangerous place for him to go. What if he got caught? What if somebody saw him? What if somebody heard him? God says, go down to the camp and listen knowing he would give that guy a dream, knowing that Gideon would show up right in time to hear it, he would give an interpretation, right? 
God was sovereignly orchestrating the circumstances of Gideon's life to draw him into a deeper faith, a more holistic trusting of God with his life. And church, if your life is hard right now, that should perk our ears up to go, hey God, what are you doing that I can't see? Because God is at work in the mess of our lives. He is patient and he will not give up on us. So after all this, Gideon finally gets it and then look at how he responds, verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, I love that that's there. He doesn't respond after he just hears the dream. He also needs to hear the interpretation. He worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. So he responds in two ways. He worships and he obeys. The word worship here literally means to bow down. It means to fall down. And I love this picture that, that Gideon is still outside the camp of Midianite. He's still within earshot of the guards and he's on his face worshiping God because he hears his name on the lips of the enemy. And at that moment, his heart is filled with faith in God and he falls down to worship him. And again, nothing changed about Gideon's circumstances here. Right? Nothing changed about the makeup of his strengths or his weaknesses but now all of a sudden, instead of God, I'm too weak, God, I can't do this, he's on his face worshiping and then he runs back into the camp to those 300 Israelites and he goes, let's go. God has given Midian into your hand. But this is the moment that he understood what God was trying to teach him. This is why God, back in chapter six, when he says, but I'm too weak, God doesn't correct him. He says, I'll be with you. Because God doesn't just care about the outcome of our life. He doesn't want us to just win the battle. We're going to win the battle. Amen? We win because of Jesus. God doesn't just care about the outcome of our lives. He wants us to draw us into a deeper faith, a more holistic trusting him. Gideon goes, I'm too weak. God goes, yeah, but I'll be with you because he wants to teach him. I got this. He intentionally weakens Gideon's army to draw him into a deeper faith, despite the fact that his circumstances still seemed impossible. 300 men against 135,000. So we don't have time to dig into what happens next. You should read it this afternoon if you get a chance. Spoiler alert, Israel wins, okay? God gives him the victory like he promises he will. And just like we've seen so far in the book of Judges, he accomplishes incredible things through unexpected means, and Israel basically defeats Midian without firing a shot. But what does any of this have to do with us? In case you didn't know, God isn't asking us to go and bring salvation to his people. He's already accomplished that work for us in Christ. But God says to Gideon, go and save Israel from the hand of Midian, and I will be with you. And he says a very similar thing to us in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, and behold, I am with you always. So God has commissioned us, just like he has committed, commissioned Gideon, and, and how do we typically respond? Is it like Gideon before verse 15, God, I'm too weak, God, I can't do this. Here's all the reasons why I can't do what you're asking me to do. Is it like that, or is it like him after verse 15, when his heart is filled with faith in God, and he worships and obeys? God has commissioned us, just like he has commissioned Gideon. And we have the tendency to think that if God is gonna use us, then we have to be on our A game. We believe the opposite of 2 Corinthians 12, that when I'm strong, then I'm strong. Like Paul, we're praying, God, take this away so that I can be effective for your kingdom because we think when we're weak, we are ineffective for God's kingdom and proves we're not reading our Bible like we should, or at least we're not believing it. 
And I love Judges 7 because the passage has the power to be so helpful for us to recalibrate our hearts and our minds. God isn't asking you to be strong enough. He's asking you to believe that he is. Right? He's trying to bring you to a place of realizing that maybe we aren't as strong as we thought we were. And that's okay. Right? To empty our hands of what he can do, or what we can do rather, so that by his power, we can, it can be made perfect in us. Last thing, this means that the places in your life where you feel the most inadequate, the spots in your heart where you feel the most like a failure, that might be the place where you are the most ripe to be used by God. I feel like a failure as a mom. God wants to work there. I feel completely inadequate as a husband. God wants to work there. I feel incapable of sharing the gospel with the person next to me in class because I don't know my Bible well enough. God isn't asking you to be strong enough. He's asking you to believe that he is. I feel like a failure. I'm inadequate here. I can't do this. God is wanting to work there. And you might be thinking, how, right? How could that be? And the answer is what we just read in 2 Corinthians 12, because his power is made perfect in our weakness. Now, I emphasize the in there because we need to hear that right. His power isn't made perfect despite our weakness. Many of us believe that, that, that God wants to work through us even though we're weak, but we're weak over here and we deal with the thorn in the flesh because God wants to use our other strengths. No, the Bible says his power is made perfect in our weakness, not despite it. Not after a season of weakness, a season of difficulty, then God's going to use you. No, his power is made perfect in our weakness. When we learn to trust him that he can do what we can't. And guys, this doesn't mean we shouldn't operate in our strengths. It doesn't mean that we should shy away from the places that God has gifted us. It just means we shouldn't hang our hat there. By all means, run in the places that God has gifted you, but just know that your weaknesses don't disqualify you. God says, go to Midian, but if you're afraid, here, he's patient with us. He won't give up on us. He is at work in the mess of our lives. The good news of the gospel is not, hey, look at how strong I am, but it's how good is God that despite my weaknesses, the strength of Christ counts for me. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing and respond to that truth. Father, we thank you this morning that you love us enough not to leave us on the road of I've got this. I don't need anyone else. That you are willing, as we can see in Judges 7, to weaken us, to teach us to trust you. So I pray in this moment for folks who are struggling, who feel like they're in a season of weakness, God, would you be with them? Would you remind them in this moment that you haven't given up on them and you never will? And that somehow, despite the fact that they can't see it, you are at work in the mess of their lives. God, would you help us to sing and respond this morning to the good